Welcome to the podcast of Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. We hope that you enjoy the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. If uh, you have your Bible and you uh, would turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. That's Matthew chapter 5. Um, we've been going through Matthew and... Uh, uh, we have now come to, to the, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I have uh, here at uh, this church already preached a sermon through the sermon, uh, not a sermon, but a, uh, a series through the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, what I counted this morning, through chapter 5, it took me five, uh, seven sermons to preach through that. So uh, seven sermons at approximately a half hour each, uh, that would be about three and a half hours uh, if, I, if I gave all of uh, a full exposition of everything in here. Well, tonight we're going to, not tonight, today we're going to cover just chapter five, and I promise you it won't take three and a half hours. Um, This morning, we're going to kind of look at it from a a bird's eye view up above and uh, and, and, um, try to to just come up with a summary of uh, of chapter five. Um, If you would like a deeper dive into this, um, we, our, our old series is on, uh, on SoundCloud, and uh, if you need help finding that, I can, I can refer you to that. But we're just going to go through one week at a time, chapter 5 this week, chapter 6 the next week, chapter 7 the week after that, um, so that we can get through the Sermon on the Mount and pick up with um, Jesus' ministry in chapter 8. Um, what we see in chapter 5 and actually, I think what we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the big picture idea is that Jesus is turning on its head uh, the conception of what it t- took to be blessed, uh, what it took to be happy in this life. Uh, and then also, Jesus also um, reinterprets or corrects the interpretation uh, of the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses that he saw in his day. Um, you see, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees were experts on the law. They knew the Ten Commandments. They knew the Law of Moses very, very well. And yet, they didn't measure up. Yet, they said they did. And Jesus shows how uh, they, had got, they had missed the point and they had gotten it wrong. So we're going to go through a piece at a time. Uh, We're going to look at the whole chapter, and there are 48 verses. So I'm not going to read the entire chapter at the very beginning. I'm just going to read each section as we cover them. Beginning in in verse 1 of chapter 5, Matthew says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, give me grace as I preach your word. Give me strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus begins here. um, He goes up on a mountain to preach this sermon. Now, there's not a really big deal that he went up on the mountain. And yet, um, one point that I want to get from this. Uh, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he, he gives this sermon in which he explains many of the Ten Commandments. And I want us that to kind of jog our memory if we, if we know the story of Moses. Moses went up on the mountain. And on Mount Sinai, he received the Ten Commandments, the very thing that Jesus, I think, is exposing here. So Moses uh, goes up on the mountain, he receives the Ten Commandments, and Jesus goes up on the mountain and he explains the Ten Commandments. Uh, In this, I think we, in a way, can see Jesus' ministry modeling that of the ministry of Moses. I don't want to draw too much of a connection together, and yet... Uh, the Gospel of John seems to link Moses and Jesus together in the same way. Moses, uh, the Gospel of John says that through the law, I'm sorry, through, the, through Moses, the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so there's a, a link between those two people in the Bible. And I think the similarity we see of, of Jesus going up on top of the mountain um, may, may, slightly hint at the idea that um, Jesus is kind of like a new Moses. Now he comes to opening his mouth and teaching the people. He's teaching his disciples. He's there with his disciples. They weren't just anybody. It wasn't just uh, a a crowd of, of, uh, uh, of everybody out there. But his disciples followed him up on the mountain, and that's who he was teaching at this time. And the first subject that he deals with is how to be happy. How to be happy. He says, blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And that word blessed uh, is happy. It's, it's happy are the. Uh, now, happy, it, it loses a little bit of something. Uh, it, it is an idea of joy and bliss. Uh, and yet, uh, blessed has more of, of, of the religious connotation here. It's, it's one who is happy because of what God has done for them. It's someone who is, is uh, experiencing God's favor. And so that, that brings a joy in their life. And, and look at who he says is blessed, who is happy. You know, if we uh, were to describe the kinds of things that we might want to make us happy from a worldly perspective, we might think having plenty of money in the bank, having all our stresses taken care of. We would, maybe we would think people would like us, right? People would like us. That would make us happy. We might think um, um, no, 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 no bad things happening in my life right now. We would think that would make us happy. But Jesus turns all of that on his head. The very first one he says is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like I said, we we might think to be happy, we need to have plenty of money in the bank. 
But here Jesus begins with, blessed are the poor. Now, he, uh, he does give a qualifier there. He says, uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. So what does it mean to be spiritually poor? I believe it means that we understand we can bring nothing to God in order to please Him. No, we come to Him poor. We come to Him wretched. We come to Him with empty hands, with nothing. And He gives us everything. When we recognize our spiritual poverty to realize I can't do anything to save myself, that's when we're spiritually poor. And we throw ourselves on Jesus and He gives us, it says here, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, He turns upside down the idea of what it means to be happy. Here in verse 4, He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourn. We don't put those two together. Happy are those who mourn. So to be happy, you have to be sad. It doesn't make sense to us. And yet, again, this is a spiritual mourning, I think. When we look at the world and its brokenness, of how, how, how the world is so broken about the, the sin and disease and death that we see in the world, we should mourn. And not just what's out there, but when we look at our own hearts, we should mourn. There's a, a guy that uh, lived back in the 30s and 40s by the name of G.K. Chesterton. So he, he, wrote, um, he, he wrote into a newspaper because uh, the editor asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And uh, uh, the answer that he wrote into this newspaper was, I am. And when we look at the world, we can all answer pretty much the same way. The, the, The problem with the world, it's me. And here, uh, when, when, when we see this, Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We mourn over our sin and over our own brokenness. We mourn over the fact that we have grieved God, that we have broken His laws, and we can trust that He will forgive us if we turn to Him in repentance. And He promises those who mourn, Those who mourn over our broken spiritual state will be comforted. Next he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We think meek, you know, that that meek does not mean weak. It doesn't mean being a doormat. But it also, meek doesn't mean being a jerk either. (laughs) Meek is to be gentle. Um, It's it's to, to have the ability and the strength to do something and yet hold back, to be gentle with people. He's not pushing around and trying to get their own way and demanding their own rights. Blessed are the meek. We don't have to try to demand our own rights here because we know that in the end, we'll inherit the earth. The whole world is ours. When Jesus returns, verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We think if we want to be happy, we need to have a full belly. We need to be satisfied and have plenty of food to eat. Yet Jesus says here, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. To hunger and thirst specifically for righteousness. We want to be like Jesus. We want to, to, to have lives that are pleasing to God. For they will be satisfied. Blessed are those are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's not the person who gets even who's blessed. Getting revenge doesn't get you happy. No, here Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We've all broken God's laws. And when someone offends us, we ought to extend forgiveness to them in order to receive forgiveness from God. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What did Jesus do? He came and reconciled man and God. He was a peacemaker. He came to die as a substitute so that man and God could be reconciled with one another. And so when we engage in the activity of peacemaking, we are being like our Father who is in heaven. They shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. I know that's what makes me happy, right? To be persecuted. That seems strange to us too. It turns on its head what the world thinks. It's those who are persecuted for righteousness, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In order to be blessed here, uh, Matthew or Jesus is telling us, Matthew records it, but Jesus is telling us to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Our, our trust is not in this world. Our trust is in God. And we know that we have a kingdom that's waiting for us, even though this world doesn't see it that way right now, and though they persecute us. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now I know that what, that's what really makes me happy here, when others are slandering me. When there's bad talk about me out in the community, that's, that's just what makes me blessed. No, it doesn't really feel that way, does it? But Jesus here is saying, blessed are you when others revile you and slander you. And, and how can that be? Because we know the truth. And we know that one day we will be vindicated. And we know that we are identifying with Jesus and all the righteous people of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it says that they persecuted the prophets who were before us. And they did the same thing to Jesus. And when we are persecuted, when people speak evil against us, we know that we're on the right side. They did the same thing to God's prophets in the past. And they did the same thing to Jesus. So Jesus turns on its head the way that the world thinks we are to be happy. Um, now, we'll go ahead and go to the next point here. Salt and light. Um, we are, how, this next part is kind of about influence. So, 
He starts out in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the people in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. What we see here is um, uh, salt. What do we do with salt? We use it to season things, to have a better taste. And also, uh, we, we might use it for preserving things. Before you had refrigerators, you had to put salt on meat to get it to last longer. And, and so salt is used as a preservative, and it's used to season things. Jesus here is telling us that, uh, that believers, as, that Christians, are to be salt in the world. We're to have a preserving agent, as like salt does, and also to... Um, uh, to um, to season the world, uh, to 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 have an influence in the world, like salt does on the flavor of the things we put it on, and then light. You are the light of the world. He 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 changes his metaphors from talking about salt. He talks about light, and he he, he gives this absurd picture. He says a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Uh, in the ancient world. Today, we, you know, we've got so many lights. Uh, we've got lights, street lights everywhere, you know. But think about traveling in the ancient world. You didn't have street lights all over everywhere. It was dark. It was pitch dark. You go out into the boonies where there's nothing, and you look up into the sky, and you can see the stars a whole lot better. And maybe you can see off in the distance where the lights are coming from. That's where the cities are. But here, Jesus is saying a city set on a hill, that's where all the lights are. People have their fires burning and things like that. And he says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Um, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. When you light, a, if, you know, we had, didn't have electricity. <laughs> you light a lamp. You light a. You don't put a basket over it. No, if you're going to light a lamp, it's because you want it to, to shine. And Jesus is here saying we're like that. Uh, we are the light of the world. We're not to cover our light, um, but we want it to shine in such a way that people see it. Um, here he says, and the way we do that is talked about in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God, who, to your Father who's in heaven. Why do we let our light shine? So that people will see them. Why do we do good works? So that people will see them. Now that's strange because it actually seems to go against what Jesus says in 6.1. In, verse, in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It seems like we have a contradiction here. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But so on, on verse 6, or in chapter 6, he tells us, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. But in chapter 5, he's telling us, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What is the difference? It is a dangerous thing to try to do works in front of people so that they would see them. It is a dangerous thing because our motives make all the difference. 
We don't do our good works in front of people so that people will look at us and think, oh, they're good people. That's not the right motivation of our heart. We want to do good works so that when people see those good works, they thank God. And we want to point to Him. We want our works not to point to ourselves, but our works to point to Him and what He's done in our lives. The change that's taken place. Not so that we can have our own credit, but so that God gets the glory for our works. And I think that's how the two fit together and they don't contradict. Now verse 17. Jesus now comes and He talks about the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now the law and the prophets are um, two sections of the Old Testament. The law would be the first five books, the law of Moses, that would be um, Matthew, or no, I'm sorry, Matthew, that's the New Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The prophets would include all the writing prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, Ezekiel, all of those prophets, but they also include things like Samuel and Kings. Those are also considered prophet books. And what Jesus is saying, one of the accusations that Jesus was getting was that he was not following the law and the prophets. For for instance, so many times Jesus in his ministry was criticized because he did things on the Sabbath day. He did things on a day whenever people were not supposed to be working. And so he people would accuse him of abolishing the law of 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 but he's here saying don't think that I've come to abolish law, the law verse 17 or the prophets I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them for truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus here is saying is He came and He... He um, affirms all of the Old Testament. He affirms it. I didn't come to get rid of it. No, I came to fulfill it. Um, now, there are some changes that take place in the, in the way that a Christian obeys the law. Um, Ron and I had this discussion a little while back ago because there's so many different laws we see in the Old Testament. We see the Ten Commandments that talks about do not lie, do not murder, do not commit adultery, all those kinds of things. But you also have all of these other kinds of laws like, um, uh, you know, don't eat shellfish, <laughs> don't eat pork, things like that. What, what do those have to do? And how is, how is Jesus fulfilling those? Well, probably a good way to understand that is that the law had three parts. There's, there's those things that are the moral law, those abiding truths that last forever. Things like do not kill, do not lie, do not murder, do not commit adultery. All those things are like, they are the law for all people. That law that, as the, the responsive reading said, it was written on the heart of Adam and everybody since then. And it was written down by Moses. 
Um, there are also, there's also another part of the law we might call the civil law. And those civil laws were those things that were um, telling Israel how they were to live as a nation. But the church is different from that. The church is not a nation. Uh, the church, it, it transcends national boundaries. The church is from every people, tribe, tongue, and nation. And so we don't live as a nation with a, with a civil law like, like the Old Testament Jews did. And so that, that is not in, in force anymore for, for believers. And then also there, were, there was a part of the law called the, that we would call the ceremonial law. The sacrifices and things like that. That was a part of the ceremonial law. And, and so um, Jesus fulfilled that ceremonial law in that they, He was the thing that all of that was pointing to. We don't practice sacrifices anymore. We don't sacrifice uh, doves and rams and sheep and all those kinds of things anymore because Jesus was the one who came to fulfill that. All of those Old Testament sacrifices were all pointing to the fact that one day He would come and He would be the Lamb of God that would take away all of our sins. Um, So Jesus... He, he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament. No. He affirms the Old Testament. He is what point, the Old Testament all pointed to. And He tells us at the end of this passage, for I tell you that if your righteous, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And this is a very hard statement. Although we often, whenever we think about the scribes and the Pharisees in the Old Testament, we think, well, they were a bunch of hypocrites. I can be better than that. But the fact is, the the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the ones who knew the Bible. They were the ones who were very meticulous about trying to be obedient to the Bible. And Jesus tells us we have to have a righteousness that's even better than the scribes and the Pharisees in order to be saved, in order to avoid hell, in order to go to heaven. Now how can this be? Jesus will go through and He's going to explain many of the Ten Commandments and we're going to go ahead and get to that in just a second. But I want to pause right here because He brings this up. That our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You know what? We've all broken God's law. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is going to go through and demonstrate how each one of us falls And each one of us can't keep the law. How can we ever have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? The only way that can happen is if we have a righteousness that is not our own. Jesus came to be our righteousness. We come to God as spiritually poor, like the first one of the Beatitudes, those blessed are those. We say to God, I have nothing. I have broken your law. I mourn over that. And we trust in Jesus. And He gives us His righteousness. The only way that we can stand before a holy God one day is not on our own righteousness. We will not one day stand before God and point at a a pile of all the good deeds we've done and say, look at what I've done. You better let me in. No. No. The only thing we can do whenever we stand before God one day is say, I've done nothing but Jesus paid my price. And He's enough. 
That's what we'll say one day. We have a righteousness that is not our own, but it is Christ that is given to us. Now, the, the rest of this chapter, Jesus um, is uh, explaining many of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to begin with the first. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. And go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going to court with him, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now Jesus here is expositing the command in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. And I'm going to try to tie this up here. First of all, we think we've obeyed that if we've never killed anybody. Right? You shall not murder. I've never killed anybody. I've never shot anybody. I've never stabbed anybody. I've never, never done anything like that. So I'm, I'm, I'm good there, right? But what Jesus here says is, while the law says you shall not murder, there's a deeper principle that, that underlays that. If you're angry with your brother, if you insult your brother and say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. And what Jesus here is doing is saying, you think you're good because you haven't actually killed anybody? But in your heart, you've done just as bad. He does the same thing with lust um, when it comes to Adultery. He says, you, you heard that it was said, you shall, not, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better to lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. But if your right at hand, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better to you lose one of your members, then your whole body go into hell. He's still talking here about uh, um, adultery whenever he begins talking about divorce here, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There is so much I could say about this. So much I could say about this. But let's just cut it down to the bare minimum here. Again, Jesus is saying, you think you're good? You've never cheated on your spouse? But if you've even looked at a woman lustfully, or the law, the Old Testament law, permitted that a person get a divorce, but if they do so for any other reason than that their spouse cheated on them, they're, com- they're committing adultery too. 
So what Jesus here is doing is He's saying, you think you're good? There's a principle underlying that law that, that really lies at the heart. You can break the law without actually breaking the law physically. And, and by doing so, Jesus is showing how we are guilty, guilty, guilty. You ever been angry at somebody? You ever called somebody a jerk? We're guilty of murder. You ever lusted after somebody? We're guilty of adultery. See, he does the same thing here when it comes to oaths. Again, you've heard it. Uh, again, you've heard it said to those of old, "You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the oath which you have sworn." One of the Ten Commandments is, "You shall not bear false witness." I think this is going together with that. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or by for that is his throne the throne of God, or by earth, for that is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Now, in that day, and even even sometimes today, we might say, you know, If we want somebody to believe us, we might say, I swear to God, right? We might say, I I swear on my mother's grave. And all of those things are trying to, to, you know, you can really believe me this time. But Jesus here is saying, don't make those kinds of oaths. For one, you don't know whether something might happen and you won't be able to fulfill your oath. He says, um... Don't take an oath either by heaven or oh, see me. And you don't. Like whenever he says about the head, don't swear by your head. You can't make one hair white or black. You can't change anything. Don't swear by that. Um, what he's saying is, you think you've been a pretty honest person? Every careless word that comes out of our mouths will one day be judged by God. Every careless word, even the things that we had no control over, they'll be judged. So Jesus, one by one, he's looking at those things in the Ten Commandments and saying, you think you've done okay? It's not good enough. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. Now, retaliation, verse 38, he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not... Resist one who is evil, but anyone who slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Here, it's not talking so much about one of the Ten Commandments, but it's something that's found in the law of Moses, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You may have heard, I think, it, I think it was Martin Luther King Jr. who said, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. Um, in that context, G- Moses gave the, the law an eye for an eye not to, to, um, 
say, well, to, to mete out a kind of a punishment where if you poke out somebody's eye, then, then they, they, they have to have their, you, know, you have to have your eye poked out too. That's not what he was doing. He was putting limits. See, in the ancient world, somebody might steal something and then they would have their hand cut off for it. Just like they, they do in Arab countries today. Uh, but that's a punishment that exceeds the crime. And what eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was supposed to mean is you can't have a punishment that exceeds what the crime is. It's, it's, it puts limits on things. But what Jesus here is saying is it's even more than that. It's not just having a punishment that fits the crime. It's forgive. And if someone wants to hit you, don't get back at them. Instead, turn the other cheek. Offer it to them. That seems like a strange thing to do. And again, Jesus turns on its head the things that we would think naturally about how to live in this world. And then finally, love your enemies. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your enemy, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the law never says hate your enemy. But it does say, love your neighbor, and that's found in Leviticus. And that's probably how people applied it. You love those who are your neighbor, and you hate other people. You hate your enemies. But here, Jesus is saying, love your enemies. Who can do that? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Sounds like a strange teaching, but yet that's what Jesus calls us to. The final verse here, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Anybody meet that? No. None of us. None of us meets that. So what does the Sermon on the Mount do? We would be wrong to think, well, we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, we can put all that into practice, and we can therefore earn our way to God. No, that's not how it works. None of us can do this. Jesus was lifting a standard so high that no one can meet it. Except Him. He was the one who met it. And so if we want to have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes of the Pharisees, if we want to enter the kingdom of heaven, if we want to be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect, the only way that we can have it is by pleading the mercies of Christ, by turning to Him, asking Him to take over our lives. He counts His righteousness to us, and He took all of our punishment on Himself. But then, what does that mean for how we are to live? Once we have trusted Christ, it's not that we can somehow do this perfectly, but this does show us the way we are to live.
We are to be people who love our enemies. And we can't do that on our own. We can't do that out of our own strength, out of our own power, out of our own will. We can only do that from a changed heart when Jesus has changed us. We are to be the kind of people who ruthlessly fight against our own indwelling sin within us. And when we, when we realize we have uh, some kind of a conflict in our relationship that's keeping us between, between ourselves and another person, we ought not think we can come to church and just praise without taking care of our relationships on the outside. But like he said here, go, work it out with them, and then come and worship. The, 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 the Sermon on the Mount, and particularly Matthew chapter 5 that we've looked at today, lifts the standard so high that we have no other choice but to say, I can't do it, and to look to Jesus. But then when we have done that, it also gives us what to strive for. Not that we will ever attain it in this world, but it gives us what to strive for And we won't ever achieve that until we have seen him face to face when he returns again. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Baptist Church of Panama. For more information, please visit us at RedeemerBaptistPanama.com or you can like us on Facebook.